Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. Michael Wolf is my guest, and he's talking about his third book, Chronicling Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And the fact that this is his third book on the Trump presidency says a lot because the first two books were scathing. And yet, Trump keeps giving Wolf access. And in each book, Wolf talks extensively with people working inside the White House, aides who are dealing with the president all the time, and the stories they tell, which are corroborated by other aides who are in the room, are really devastating. They're just awful, and they're hilarious. And yet, Trump continues to give Wolf this access and sits down with him, and it's part of his insanity. He just thinks that he can charm and uh, convince anyone, any even people who've just written horrible things about him a week ago. You know, he just is going like, and, and then, and, and Wolf sits down with him uh, at the end of this, at Mar-a-Lago, this is after he's ex-president now, and Trump sits down with him, and it's crazy. All, all that chapter is is quoting him. <laughs> I won by the largest margin in history. It was a landslide. The book is named Landslide. Ugh. You know what? I, I've read a lot of books uh, on Trump. This one is both hilarious and unbelievably disturbing. I think you'll be fascinated by this portrait of, of Donald Trump. So, you know, this, this one is going to be uh, odd and abnormal for a change. Abnormal for a change? You've never heard me say that. Uh, I just want to mention the incredibly disturbing decision by the Supreme Court in, in their shadow docket, this was a 5-4 decision to uphold a Texas law banning abortion in the state after six weeks after conception. That is, that is unconstitutional. Roe v. Wade gives women the right to make this decision till the fetus is, is viable, what they consider viable. This overturns Roe. And the court, specifically Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett, made the decision to overturn this nearly 50-year-old ruling with no briefs, no arguments, 
before the court, no questions, no discussion. This is unheard of. Now, remember Susan Collins? She said that she had his assurance that Roe v. Wade was settled law. Now, that technically means that lower courts have to observe stare decisis. They have to observe the decision that the Supreme Court had made. But as a member of the Supreme Court, he could go a different way. But the implication of him saying to her, it's settled law, when you're, you know, when you're having your, your meeting with a U.S. senator who's going to vote on your confirmation, that means it would take a lot <laughs> for me to overturn stare decisis, to overturn settled law. Assuring a supposedly pro-choice senator that it's settled law doesn't mean, oh, I'll reverse it at the drop of a hat. But of course, he was playing her. And anyone who had any brains at all at the time was saying, well, you can't trust that. You're being played. No, no, I'm not, said Collins. Well, she was playing the people of Maine. He said it was settled law. I made sure for the women of Maine that I had his assurance. This is a disgrace all around. I'm a little worried that Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett are going to reverse Brown v. Board very soon in the shadow docket. And then uh, probably Dred Scott. <sighs> okay. Uh, well, we've got a great one today. <laughs> Uh, with Michael Wolf on just how crazy and weird our last president uh, was and is and remains. I think you'll be fascinated, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I started out in the prologue in the book where he gets very upset. <laughs> uh, this is Trump. Uh, gets very upset about a, a, a spelling error in a document. And uh, he thinks it could have been corrected by spell check, but couldn't have been because it was in italics. But you don't like him from the very start of the book to the and at first it's I was laughing out loud, reading it to my wife. And then at the end I was just deeply, deeply depressed that this man that we let this man anywhere near the Oval Office and that our, our the President of the United States was this out of the norm in terms of human beings. Am I wrong to have taken it? That no, way? I would say that that's a fairly accurate summation. Um no, I mean, it's extra, I mean, extraordinary. And the kind of thing that I, I, I hope to leave readers with is that this is inexplicable. I mean, how did this happen? This, this man, it, it, it's, it's not as if this man is just a conservative who we don't like um, or is, um, you know, mendacious in a, in a way that we've come to expect politicians to be even more mendacious than we've come to expect them to be. It's that um, uh, this man is totally off of his rocker. And, and you know what? That's, that is like, when you say that, there has a lightness to it. Because off his rocker sounds like grandpa's off his rocker. This is uh, deeply disturbing. Yeah, no, I think you can say, you can, you can be more precise. This man <laughs> lives in a reality zone that um, no one else lives in. This man sees things through a lens that no one else is looking. So I, I don't know how you want to define crazy and off his rocker, but um, it, it you I think that there is no extreme that you can apply to this. Um, well, but not only is it crazy, there are crazy people who aren't awful, you know, mean people who live to hurt other people. And there are dishonest people who live to hurt other people who aren't president of the United States. And there are people who are mean and lazy. <laughs> and it, there's nothing about this guy. Now, the book is called Landslide. And it's called Landslide because on election night, he just goes out there when he's, I guess, worried, um, when it's not going his way, and asserts that the election is being stolen and that he actually won in a landslide. So that's election night. And he never... He never leaves that. The, the, it's it's from that till you're interviewing him in Mar-a-Lago. You take him word for word, and it's it's depressingly insane what he is saying. It, it's kind of remarkable. Um, I mean, there is no there is no from November third on. He doesn't move off of this fixed position. He won the election, and he won the election in a landslide, not just won it, but in a landslide. It's more complicated than this is the big lie. Um, that's easy to understand. What's hard to understand is that he fixates on this irreality, is supported by literally no one. And nothing. Uh, no, and nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's no evidence. There's no empirical evidence. And there's nobody. It's, it's, it's not as if he's surrounded by a White House of people saying, you're right, Donald, you're right. Um, he's surrounded by, by people in the White House who are fleeing. Yes. They're going, they're rolling their eyes. 
They're saying, we don't know what to do. And they are literally leaving. First of all, that White House doesn't have a lot of people with a lot of integrity. Uh, there are people who thought that being in the White House would, you know, burnish their uh, resume and get them jobs later. And then there's a certain point where everybody at right toward the end uh, is thinking, like, I'll never get a job again because I'm associated with this. And this is, this is one thing I'm struck with at the end. It seems to me that you're saying that the House impeaching him gave him new life. And that perhaps if they just said, you know what, um, it's the end of the term. Uh, you got, you know, you got two weeks left. We're just going to, we're too bored with you. Just fade away and just ignore them that that would have hurt him more. Oh, much more. I mean, one of his, so the accomplishment, if there is a Donald Trump accomplishment, it is to turn all attention into a positive for him. It doesn't really matter what the attention is. He could shoot, um, shoot someone on, on Fifth Avenue. Yeah, uh, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference. It is just that because it's all, it's, essentially, it is all theatric. Um, so therefore, I mean, it's all a reality show. Therefore, all conflict is good ratings. Right. Yeah. You make that point, And then when you, you, you hear that, you go like, hmm, that is kind of right. And the, the, I had not considered that point, but it's pretty uh, sickening because you go like, gee, if we just said, oh, you know what? It's not worth it. Just go away. No, I mean, and I think that has been in, in a way the whole four-year history here, part of the problem is a media problem and a journalistic problem in that we've, we've fed into, I mean, he, he's learned um, how to work us. We've learned the benefit of letting him work us. So you, you've, you've developed a cycle in which there is literally no other story because you keep wanting the story to go on. It's never a question of there being too much. So I was talking uh, the other week to Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt about uh, COVID, of course, and I started blaming Trump for a number of aspects of, of our response to COVID, including here's a guy who bragged about, you know, Operation Warp Speed and now won't go out and say, I, I got the vaccine, wouldn't get the vaccine on TV, won't go out and say, hey, everybody take the vaccine, knowing that it would save an enormous number of lives. But he won't do it. I think his reasoning is, is that the more people who die of COVID under Biden, the less successful Biden seems. That seems like a fair interpretation of that, don't you think? Well, I, I mean, I, I would I would just add that there was a point which I recount in the in in the book, and the, it's over the summer, um, last summer in or early August, and a whole set of his pollsters come to him and and say, you know, masks are incredibly popular, even with the base. You know, you have a seventy percent rate of of acceptance for wearing masks. We should wear masks. That's that's your base saying this. So you have to soften your position here. If you soften your position, that will make a meaningful difference 
in terms of the, the, the ultimate election here. This is an important point. And he says, no, I won't do that. I won't do that. I, I can't do that. They, you know, the base will never accept that. So in some sense, he's got this thing going. You, you, you know, he's talking to his audience all of the time. And that conversation doesn't really, um, it's, it's not really impacted by evidence, empirical evidence. The pollsters come to him and say the following. No, he ignores that completely. So it's his thing. Uh, you, you know, he's an actor. He knows his audience better than anybody. So that's the thing that's always processing. So unlike all politicians or most other politicians who are always a reflection of the data that they're getting, of the polling, of what they have to do. He is this instinctual being. Um, this is partly because numbers mean nothing to him, so um, he can't follow them and doesn't have an attention span to focus on them. What he does is just focus on this, this kind of you know, call and response that he does with this imagined base of his, this, this audience out there somewhere. Might he have been right that uh, even though 70% of his, quote, base was from wearing masks, that the 30% he was, uh, that were not for it were kind of the, the people in his gut who he thinks he's, are, are the most loyal? Well, uh, you know, he, came, he certainly came awfully close to winning an election that uh, by any logic he could not possibly have won. I've, I've been saying that a malignant narcissist of merely average intelligence would have understand that actually handling COVID and doing it well would have gotten them reelected. But he did not understand that and kind of backed into it one way by saying it's, you know, it's all in the control. It's going to disappear. <laughs> and, and he kind of never wanted to back off that because of why? Why was that? I mean, it, well, well, just well, just remember the other fact is that he has no problem-solving capabilities. He essentially has no executive function. Oh yeah, this is the worst man who could be president. He's the opposite in every way of who you want to be president. He uh, watches Fox. That's his zeitgeist. And he cannot absorb information. He's bored by information. He's bored. If anyone get briefs him, you say, basically, his attention wanders. This is the opposite of what you think of when you think of a president, of any executive, but especially of a president of the United States. I mean, compare, like Nixon, okay, he, you know, got impeached or was about to be impeached and left. Nixon could read <laughs> and could absorb stuff and, uh, you know, wrote about foreign policy and allowed a lot of great stuff to happen, right? Well, Nixon <laughs> knew how to do the job. I mean, he might have been, you know, um, uh, you, know a, a, you know, a son of a bitch and a crook on top of that. But nevertheless, the basics of the job he had mastered. I mean, when I did my first book, Fire and Fury, you, you know, about you know, I remember it about four months into the the administration. And remember, you know, I mean, Trump didn't know anybody in politics. So everybody who came into the White House with him, you know, they didn't know him either. 
So they but were a lot of there. them were somebody somebody knew, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. We, um, we don't we don't uh, you know we don't allow anyone in here who nobody don't know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they allowed. They, remember, they allowed me into the middle of this. So it, <laughs> it made this made no sense. Not only anybody. that, not only that, but after this, this is your third book on him. All of them in sort of this line. He still. Still, still, still believes yeah. that he can uh, uh, that there's some benefit to him of of meeting with you, and you meet with him in Mar-a-Lago, and all you do is quote him, and it's insane what he is saying, insane. So about four months <laughs> in, everybody started, you know, and I'm asking, you know, give me the lowdown. What's going on here? How is, you know, how does he? And and almost everybody in 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 their own way said. The following that it was incredibly difficult to get information to him for one thing because he didn't read i mean he didn't read anything it was like a hundred percent no reading so you couldn't put anything in writing and then they would say that's obviously a major problem but it's compounded by the fact that he doesn't listen either <laughs> Yeah, you're kind of, I think everyone should just, just, that's a good sound bite. <laughs> he doesn't read. He also doesn't listen. You know, it has to be visual. So you mm -hmm. have to, oh, yes. okay. you have to retail everything through television. Mm -hmm. So that's so eyes and ears. That's message ears to too. Him, you know, you go. got to call, you got to call up Tucker Carlson and get him to say something. Or Sean Hannity, who. Yeah. Appears yes. to be um, one of the slavishly hangers on. But oh, speaking of slavish hangers on, so there, uh, as you say, there's this constant attrition of people who finally can't take it anymore <laughs> and, uh, and just leave. And he's left with the dregs and Rudy Giuliani uh, being the dreg. I want you to talk about some of the highlights of this because Pretty much every page or two, there is a unbelievably disturbing or hilarious highlight. So I just, I, I gave up. So I want, but, you know, of course we have uh, Powell, uh, that press conference where she comes in and that's 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 the press conference where Rudy's uh, hair dye uh, is streaking down his cheeks. And, you know, a lot of people remark on that, like, you know, this is a really important press conference and this hair dye is going down his cheeks and people go, isn't it? You know, that's amazing. And I, what people don't mention is I believe that's the first time in history that someone's hair dye streaked down their cheeks in a press conference. I don't, I've never seen it. No never one remarks on that. It's like, no. oh yeah, wasn't that, you know, what a, Funny thing that happened to Rudy. It's it's the only time I've ever seen it in my life. Totally. And what it happens in a really important I, press conference. <laughs> and it's curious that it happens, the person that it happens to is Rudy Giuliani. Um, who well, that's is, kind of perfect. Yeah. See, I thought he had no gray. I thought that he was just a young, <laughs> you know, I thought he was much younger. <laughs> Then, you know, because he takes care of his body. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, even Trump understands that Rudy is a problem. 
you know, Trump goes around saying, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, he's drunk all the time. You know, he's drinking a lot. Um, and um, and he's always falling asleep. And there is a number of references to flatulence. That, yes, that- t- totally. Everybody's Rudy is always clearing the room. But nevertheless, Rudy is the only person who will say what Trump wants to hear. Therefore, he's the president's lawyer. Uh, unless let's let's remember that Rudy hasn't practiced law in um, decades. The, you know, no matter. I, I, did you talk to Mark Elias uh, in, for this book? You, you know, I didn't. Not that I didn't try. There, there's uh, stuff in this that that. I find hilarious with Giuliani that that Mark has talked about on on this podcast, and one of them is he's uh, this is in Pennsylvania, and they're charging fraud in their case, and uh, to charge fraud, you have to prove certain stuff that there's fraud. For example, <laughs> you have to show proof, and. Th- you have to look at the case with with a certain level of scrutiny, right? It has to survive a certain level of scrutiny. And he asks Rudy, what level of scrutiny do you want? And he just doesn't, you say he, he hadn't practiced law in a long time. And he just goes, um, you know, the regular. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes to say, okay, <laughs> We're actually not claiming fraud um, because the other guys in the White House had, in fact, th- taken that out of the out of the brief precisely for that reason. Because, because it couldn't higher survive higher of, scrutiny because yes, there was yes. nothing there. And you get in trouble when you <laughs> when you claim fraud and the evidence isn't there. So Rudy says, well, actually, we're not claiming fraud. Therefore, we don't need to justify um, our fraud claim on a higher <laughs> scrutiny, even though we still say it's fraud. I, I mean, the judge was left going, what just happened here? When Mark has talked about the legal uh, wrangling and all this, and, and he won every case except one, and that was the, the one loss he had was that to cure a ballot, an absentee ballot, uh, and curing means that your absentee ballot is rejected and you can go and prove, no, 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 that's my signature or whatever, that to cure it, instead of the nine days that Pennsylvania had given people, they argued, the Trump side, that you could only get six. That was their victory. 65 cases or something. That was the one they won. Every other one was, you know, you have judges in there going like, excoriating them. (laughs) And then Rudy would come out and say, this loss is a great victory for us because it gets us closer to the Supreme Court. And clearly, and he would tell Trump this, clearly the Supreme Court is going to decide in our favor. Why? Because they're your judges. You've appointed them. They are in our pocket. Oh, he gets very mad at Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Totally. He cannot believe in the end that his judges, the people who he appointed, he did something for them, quid pro quo, that they would not do something for him. It's inconceivable to him (laughs) that people could function like this. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's a lot of that uh, and a lot of revenge and a lot of um, that's sort of the only 
factor that factors into his decisions <laughs> is, is this person loyal? That's it. That's it. And then, of course, now he hates Kavanaugh. He badmouths anybody who's crossed him. Totally. And anybody. Mike Pence. Mike Pence, the, the, the you know, the lapdog. Has there ever been a vice president like this? Yeah. Uh, Mike Pence had to be embarrassed for the entire four years. And then finally, he just, okay, do I actually just do what I'm supposed to do and accept the certification of the election? Or do I take a unbelievably um, undemocratic uh, fascist <laughs> move here and change history for the, the toward the dark. <laughs> and but you know. even even that, let's even say, okay, I'm inclined to do that. There was just literally no way to do that. What what would you actually do? How 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 would that work mechanically? How would that work? I am the vice president of the United States and it is my I assert my constitutional right to reject the certification of Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Right, but you don't hold a majority in the in the in the in the Senate at this point. So it's just it's it's not going to work in in every possible way. In, in forgetting the fact or along with the then fact. Then at least he could say to Trump, "I tried." <laughs> yes, uh, I guess. <laughs> What's funny is he's come back and spoken at I don't know CPAC and other things and gone like. You know, I still support Donald Trump because Trump is the party right. still, which is uh, shocking, but but actually makes complete sense, I guess, I guess, uh, and his hold over them. And, of course, that's what keeps him going is that he has that hold over the party. And, and partly it's that's that, that's in, interesting thing because no one supports Donald Trump in the Republican Party in the privacy of their own homes and offices. Um, uh, you know, it is just this public bow. You are forced to make this public bow. And then you go back and then you say, oh, my God, the guy is such a... Um, incompetent and fuck off. No, I had I had a lot of my Republican colleagues in the Senate who said that early on would it verbalize that to me and then they stopped. <laughs> then they stopped and of course Lindsay did the 180 at some point and stuck with it. Right. Um, well, they didn't stop with me, you know, I mean, partly because, you know, I'm, uh, you know, reasonably reliable to keep something off the record. And basically they want to, they want to tell you, this is crazy. We're caught in this, in this circumstance that we can't get out of. Yeah. You still have the same sources, presumably, or a lot of the same sources on the third book that you had on the first book, I guess, although there's a lot of turnover. <laughs> yeah. There's never been a point in which someone has said, you really got this wrong. Yeah, it seems like that there's just probably you just had to say to yourself, this is unbelievable, but I'll leave it out because <laughs> because we've I have to leave some stuff out. Otherwise, it's the history of the Third Reich. I mean, it becomes a multi-volume. Well, you have a multi-volume book. <laughs> <Yeah>. don't <you? laughs> OK, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with. Uh, Michael Wolf, author of Landslide. 
If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're back with Michael Wolf. There's no moment in this where he acts human, where he, um, where you aren't uh, aghast at, at him. Did you leave that out? Did, was there a moment where he, like, comforted someone in a sincere way, where he was really, like, a great, grandfather where he showed real affection to anybody <laughs> where he... I, the answer is no by the way oh. <laughs> okay uh, i wanted to go longer so that the no was more powerful <laughs> i just wanted to go on and on until you went no that's the sense you get but there's nothing there's nothing like uh you know come over here i don't know the grandkids names but he comes over and go, how you doing? What's going on in school? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that's the sense you get is how did this country end up with possibly the worst person, not just in the country, but maybe in the world? In, in, possibly in all history. <laughs> <laughs> it is remarkable. I mean, you know, left to his devices, had he won, and he almost won. He almost won, which is which is also something inconceivable. I mean, he ran, this was literally the worst presidential campaign that anyone has ever run. I mean, uh, 10 weeks out, they find out they're $200 million in the hole. They go into the final weeks of the campaign being outspent by the challenger three to one. This has never happened. Did um, Pascal, is that how you pronounce his name? Pascal, yeah. Yeah. Did, did, did he steal money? Did people, were people stealing money? Yeah. Well, the, you know, Trump went around the saying, Brad stole all the money. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, that I think must that mean it's true if, if Trump yes, asserts it. Yeah, of course. But somehow there was a hemorrhage of money out of this, out of this, this campaign. It was also the case, you know, Trump likes, big numbers. So he liked to hear that they were raising more money than any campaign in the history of campaigns. And Trump is a top line guy. 
and not a bottom line guy so that they would spend, you know, $2 to make $1. And that would, that would make the burn rate on fundraising was yes. Even though they would trick people into giving money, they wouldn't tell them. Even so. Yes. They would spend a lot of money to trick those people. (laughs) Um, so now what's your assessment? Is he running? He is. Of course he's running. Mm -hmm. What else does he have to do? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great gig running for president. I mean, he's been doing this since the 80s, basically. But I'm assuming that part of the money that comes in that people are told is going to a future Trump campaign is going to him personally. Is that the case? Do you know this? Uh, yeah. I mean, all of this supports what, whatever he's whatever he's doing, which is running for president. So. Well, no, but I mean, like living expenses, like living large the way he likes to live. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, how, how they're bookkeeping that, I, I don't know. I mean, but, but the living thing is also interesting that he lives in this country club. You know, you know, literally you walk in, this is like an old fashioned country club. There are poster boards saying, you know, prime ribs night or, or Asian night um, or Italian night with an accordion player. So, yes, so he's, like, at a resort, and it's his uh, golf resort, and he's kind of the uh, host. Yeah, and he's greeting everybody. Hope you had a a great meal. Hope you're going to come back soon. You know, I had, in my time in New York, uh, when I was doing SNL, and then also I stayed there until my kids uh, were old enough uh, to go to college and stuff. Uh, I must have been in a room with him, I don't know, five, six, seven times. And every time I saw him, I just went, nope, not interested. <laughs> and and uh, I just went to the other side of the room. I mean, it, didn't, it just didn't engage him. And the only time uh, I actually bothered to do anything was when The Sopranos was, it was really hot. They had the premiere of one of their seasons at Radio City Music Hall and then had a big Italian dinner later and invited 5,000, however what the capacity is, people, celebrities, other important people in New York, and I was invited. And he was sitting directly in front of me. And before the lights went out, I just, and Franny, my wife, was sitting next to me, and I surprised her, too, and I just as loud as I could, said, that is the worst comb-over I've ever seen. <laughs> he turned around, uh, about ready to blast me, and he looked, and he saw it was me, and he went, not worth it. And then, <laughs> and uh, Franny was very surprised, <laughs> but she knew me. But that was my one, and then when, when I was in the Senate, and he was there, when when he did the first, joint session of of congress i i had been there of course for obama every time obama gave a state of the union speech i was in awe i'm in that chamber everybody in the government is there the joint chiefs are there the supreme court is there the ambassadors are there remember the cabinet but one is there the senate is there the house is there the galleries are full it's just awe-inspiring then when Trump does it the first time, I'm pretty close. And you know how on Saturday Night Live we do, you know, the president giving the State of the Union address. We've done that a number of times, and it's done at home base. 
home bases where the host does the monologue. I, I do, I do. I'm there, I'm going like, I feel like I'm in 8-H. <laughs> I, I, I would go in there when, with Obama and I'd go, oh man, what, a, what an honor to be here. And then I see him and I go like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, well, it is. I mean, he lives in this weird kind of, you know, parody world. Um, I mean, he's he's a joke. <laughs> He is, and this is hilarious, this book. You know, I mean, I in the book, I recount, I recount this thing about, you know, they call up, they got some problem because, you know, Trump thinks that, that they're going to push Biden off the ticket and Andrew Cuomo and Michelle Obama, some crazy stuff. Right, and, right, right. And Kushner calls up, Kushner's in a panic and calls up Karl Rove and says, you got to come and talk to, talk to him. You know, somebody has to explain the realities of, 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 of political life. Um, will you come and do this? And Rove doesn't want to come, but he finally agrees to come, um, you know, and he's promised, you know, you'll come in, we'll just bring you in and you have to just sit down with the president and just tell him the facts of life here. And, and Rove gets there and he comes into the Oval Office and there are 15 people there. He says, this is, you know, I've been in, you know, Rove has been in the Oval Office a million times and it's, you know, and it's a place where you have super important meetings. Um, and, and here he says, I don't even know who these people are. This is, this is the secret meeting I'm going to have with the president. Fifteen people in the, sitting, hanging around the Oval Office. The, the point of this, as you, you uh, write in the book, is that he just likes to have people around him to listen to him. Totally. I mean, it's just, you know, he just needs an audience at all times. Yeah, and that's what he does. He just kind of talks constantly, and he just, um, on, that's it. And he needs yeah, company. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what he says. <laughs> Everybody's used to this stuff just coming out of his mouth. Nothing, you know, we're going to delay the election, do this, blah, 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 blah. It has no meaning. Yeah, and uh, it's we have a lunatic running this, supposedly running this country. Fortunately and unfortunately, he wasn't. You know, I, I just wish that he had understood that if he had taken some responsibility for addressing COVID, we might have prevented a lot of lot of deaths. Totally, but that's inconceivable. I mean, if you spend five minutes talking to him, you know that that's not, that there's a whole, you know, um, even low-level intellectual process there that he's not capable of. Taking responsibility is actually an intellectual um, process, you know. And in, in in his, it's the COVID thing is like people are talking about COVID and not about me. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> I guess that's right. Oh my god! So how to? Yeah. So the question is going to be, which I can't answer, but it's the question for history. Literally, how did this happen? And then the ancillary question, which I also can't answer, is, is could this happen again? Yeah. I mean, I would assume that the answer is, is no. He will run for president again. And, you know, because he can't really run a campaign, it won't happen. I mean, unless the Democrats are, are, are you know, are suicidal. Yeah, we, we kind of can't allow that to happen. But, um you don't know what things will be like in 24. You just don't. And we don't know what's 
you know, we, we, again, we just had Lori Garrett and, and Andy Slavin and, uh, Andy was basically saying, you know, if this was a problem that could be solved by, you know, a small group of brilliant people, I'd bet on them, but no, this is a problem that's not really that hard if everybody did the right stuff. And I would not give that good odds. <laughs> and I'm very afraid that uh, if this keeps going and, you know, people aren't taking the vaccine because he won't tell them to. Uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Yeah, no, no. I mean, anyway, this this is a. Um, I, I mean, this again remains. You know, this is. You know, he remains the major figure in American politics, um, and the story remains his story still, which is exactly what he wants. It's just too bad that Republicans around the country, the Senate, House members, House members are pretty hopeless, and so are senators. But if they just said no. Come on, everybody! This guy is not. We we can't do this again. But they they feel they'll they'll get primary from the right. Right. Well, that so the and then the other question is, what is this country out there? Who are these people? How did this happen? Well, it's disinformation. They are getting constant disinformation from talk radio and from Fox and from OAN and. Newsmax, and that, but mainly online. And that's something I've been talking about for a long time since I wrote Rush Limbaugh's a big fat idiot and other observations. And now it's uh, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and uh, Sean Hannity. Who's, what's his role in all of this? He's, he's a bootlicker, right? He's a complete bootlicker, yeah. Um, <laughs> At one point, so he calls up Trump and says, your ads are terrible, you know, everything's terrible. And then Trump calls up the campaign and says, why are our ads so terrible? <laughs> uh, and then Hannity um, calls back and says, I've just written you a really good ad. And so that's passed to the campaign. And then the campaign produces this ad at whatever cost and then only runs it on the Hannity show. <laughs> So, I, I mean, I wonder if there's some, is this illegal at some point? I mean, essentially, it's a kickback to Sean Hannity um, of several million dollars for doing what? For actually, you know, this is the price of him not bothering the campaign anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure it's several million dollars. I mean, the ad price on even Fox is not going to be several million dollars, I don't think. Uh, but. You know, uh, well, they ran this ad a lot, <laughs> <laughs> of course, but they could have run the pillow, you know, my pillow too. So, um, and that was actually selling a pillow, <laughs> but okay. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, and, and there's like a million of those, right? I mean, that's, that's just, it's all transactional and all, none of it, none of it has anything to do with the benefit of the American people. To say the least. Um, although, you know, in Trump's mind, you know, he represents X percent of the American people, his 40% or his 43%. So, you know, it's one of those other things, and it, and it takes this, this next step, this division of the American people, that there are two Americas. I mean, this hasn't... You know, certainly never in my lifetime, and I don't think anything in anyone's lifetime since the 19th century 
has this been so clear that there are two Americas opposed to each other? Who believe completely different things. So, okay, he, he keeps saying that he won in a landslide. And he keeps pointing to his totals. This is, in other words, he goes, uh, they said I was only going to get 63 million votes, but, or 65, whatever, but I got X. What do you get? 70? 74, I think. Yeah. 74 million. And, but he doesn't point out that Biden got millions more, got 7 million more, right? No, I, I mean, the, the. I mean, he doesn't, whenever he says, they never. It's uh, it's never happened before where someone got that many more votes than than his first election. And I go, yeah, but the the other guy <laughs> You're left going, got well, seven million more than you. I mean, the numbers just float in and out without any kind of anchor to any kind of real math. Ultimately, I guess I would say that when I was finishing the book, I found it very depressing because. I mean, there's a lot of laughter along the way <laughs> and a little bit of, uh, a lot of depressing along the way. But at the end, that how this happened to our country and what, you know, what our country has become and this divided country where there there's so little ability to talk across this ga- this chasm and I don't know how we do it. And I don't know how we do it when people are listening or to talk radio, when they're watching Fox, and don't trust. And they're told over and over and over and over again not to trust anything coming from the, quote, liberal media. Yeah, I, I don't... I, I'm, uh, I don't expect um, you to answer that, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm without a response here because I, I literally have no idea. Having seen this as close as I've seen this and realized that it is... We're, we're, we're beyond, you know, shit show into utter absurdity. And not having people understand that, actually having a good part of the country see the exact opposite of this to see apparently some logic in this absurdity is I, 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 I just, um, I just throw up my hands. Well, their logic is, um, the elites have controlled the country and we got to get them out and have somebody who really represents me to some degree. That's white people. Uh, he did get more, a uh, higher percentage of, of black vote of Latino vote. Uh, in this last election, not a large increase, but he did. So that's hard to, a little bit hard for me to fathom. No, no, I mean, I can, and I can uh, uh, perfectly understand that argument. I just can't understand that Donald Trump is the beneficiary of that argument. Donald Trump, I mean, he opens his mouth. I mean, he can't stay on point for three seconds. Um, um, he has no knowledge. He, he can't make anything happen. Um, you know, I mean, he has no support within his circle of supporters. He has no support. The people around him in his circle after he lost the election. Yes, exactly. Um, literally, we saw this election take take place, um, this whole election challenge. And, and we saw everybody desert him. We saw his only supporter with the hair dry dye dripping down his head on national television. And instead of this becoming a, a, a monstrous joke for everyone, it has somehow become a, um, 
you know, a battle cry. Yeah, uh, literally a battle cry on on January 6th, which, of course, you've covered in your disturbing but wildly uh, entertaining book. Thank you for joining us, Michael. I mean, it just goes, you know, as I say, I'm this is the third book for me, so you just keep, you, you can mine this stuff forever. This is beyond um, plausibility. Yeah, I mean, and... Uh, you know, assuming he runs again, uh, there'll be a fourth book. Jesus, and, I, uh, hope, I hope, I hope not. Oh, oh good. Okay, this is it. This is your I, I hope trilogy. So. But I said that after the first book. Oh no! I, I look. I hope there isn't an occasion for for a fourth book. But congratulations on on this one, and uh, thank you, Michael, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This was great fun. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.